Does the name Tom Bodette ring a bell for you? Maybe some of you, maybe this will help. Do you remember the Motel 6 commercials? That's where he became famous. Hi, I'm Tom Bodette, and we'll leave the light on for you. Okay? Well, uh, that was, became one of the most awarded, one of the most recognized, one of the most celebrated advertisements in the, in the history of advertising. Did you know that? It became the gold standard of advertisements because Motel 6 was able to get that phrase just into our minds so that it became just part of our conversation. And so that people started saying, we'll leave the light on for you. It became a meme before a meme was a thing. And, and we all know what that means, right? You can be having a conversation with someone and, hey, why don't you come over? Well, it might be late. It's okay. Come anyway. We'll leave the light on for you. We all know what that means. And we know there's something about the lights being on that's just welcoming, isn't it? You know, if you're driving to a friend's house and you're turning down the friend's street and the house is all lit up, right? It just lets you know that somebody's there. Somebody's waiting for you. Somebody's expecting you. Somebody's wanting you to come. And you, you see the porch lights on. You see the side lights on. You see the house lit up and it's welcoming. And you know, they want me to be there. There's something about the lights being on that's so welcoming. We live in a culture and a lot of people are concerned about the trajectory of our culture. You know, things are going down. This doesn't look good in the darkness of the culture. But the truth is, if the world is dark, it's not because of the power of the darkness. It's because of the failure of the light. If, if the world is dark, it's probably because too many churches, too many Christians just haven't left the lights on. We've retreated back behind the walls of our houses, back behind the walls of our church buildings, and we failed to go and be the light because the light is always more powerful than the darkness. But if you stay behind the walls, it fails to get out. And this is what Paul is trying to tell the church in throughout Asia Minor, that you're called to be the light, to go to live in the light, to get out of the darkness. And so Ephesians 4, 25 through Ephesians 5, 2, that's what will be this morning, Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. And last week we kind of saw where Paul is encouraging the church, live in the light, don't live in the darkness, live in the light. And he gave the church a formula of how to do that. And it's not really that complicated. He said, first, you just got to put off the old self. You got to get rid of your old life, your old way of thinking. Second thing you got to do is you got to renew your mind. You got you to think biblically. You got to take everything you believe, everything you trust, everything, why you do what you do, and you have to hold that up to the guideline of Scripture. And you have to say, is this what Scripture says? Does Scripture inform everything I do? And if it doesn't, you got to renew your mind. But once you've done that, that's not enough. You can't just stay there. Then you must live it. Then you must put on the new man, and you must live that life. You must walk in the light. And so Paul, now, in this section, now he's getting into specific common issues, that we all deal with. And he's saying, hey, put off this, put on this, put off this, put on this. And so it's just a practical section for how to live life. Let's look at it. Ephesians 4, verse 25 through Ephesians 5, verse 2. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may, be, may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So a long time ago, Paul writes this letter to a church, a church that is pressed on all sides. You talk about a difficult culture to live in. I mean, this church had it rough. It was, it was pressed on all sides, challenged in every way. And Paul is writing and he's saying, you must live the radical Jesus life. You must put on the radical Jesus life. This is the life you're to live. I mean, Ephesus was an extremely difficult place to live, a really hard place to be a Christian. You may remember Paul said that when he was in Ephesus, when he was there, it was like he was wrestling with wild beasts. Okay, he almost lost his life there, if you remember in Acts 19, right? Because he starts preaching and he's saying that Jesus is the only way to God. And that statement, that exclusivity of the gospel, it, called the, it caused the Ephesians just to go crazy. They said, no, you can't say that. You can't say Jesus is the only way to God. And so it, it got, if he would have just said Jesus is a way, they'd have been fine with that. You know, the Romans, the Ephesians, they've got a whole long list of gods. If you just want to add one more to it, that's fine. But Paul's not saying that. He says Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus alone, by faith alone. And once you say that, watch out. And so Paul, he's, he's, he says, I was wrestling with wild beasts there. And now he's trying to prepare the church to go into the culture and to wrestle with this, these beasts themselves. To go to be the light to, the, to these people. And he's got to make sure that the body of believers is ready to do that. And he wants to make sure they're ready because his biggest fear is that you guys are just going to retreat back and you're going to form some kind of compound and you're going to get in some kind of safe place and you're going to fail to go and be the church that you were called to be. You're going to fail to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received because you're going to hide behind the walls. And that's not what the church does. That's not where the light goes. Christians aren't afraid. Christians aren't about self-preservation, self-protection. That's not what Christians do. Christians engage. Christians don't go picking fights, but they better be ready for when the fight picks them. And so this is what Paul's, he's, he's trying to get them ready for this. And the question comes, why, why, why does the world pick on us anyway? Why is Jesus so offensive to people anyway? Sometimes you hear the Jesus story in terms like this, that, you know, Jesus, he was just such a nice guy. He was a super nice guy, and the world is a mean place. It's a rough place, and so the bullies of the world, they just had enough of Jesus and his niceness. They couldn't stand it anymore, and so they crucified him. That's not it at all. Okay, Jesus lived a radical life, and he said, turn around, repent. You just can't live life the way you want to. You have marching orders because this is the best life you could possibly live. You must demonstrate the fruit of repentance. And, and when you do that, you stick out because now you're living the radical life of Jesus. 
Now, now the life that Jesus lived, now you're living it. You're taking the light to people. You're going to people. You're wrestling with people. And it is always the exclusivity of the gospel that offends. It offended then and it offends today. As soon as you say Jesus is the only way, that there's not many ways to God, that you can have your truth and I can have my truth, if you say that, you're fine. Culture says that's good. If Jesus is good for you, if it works for you, that's great. But as soon as you say Jesus is the only way, that everyone needs Jesus, it was offensive then and it's offensive today. And Paul, he's, he's trying to get us ready. And he's saying this is how you live the radical Jesus life. He says you got to put off falsehood. You saw it? you got to put off falsehood. You can't deceive. You can't sugarcoat. There's no such thing as like a little white lie. And you know, no, no one ever had to teach you how to lie, right? I mean, even little kids, they, they kind of figure it out when they're, when they're young. Like, hey, you know what? If I don't tell mom and dad the whole truth, you know, if, or maybe if I blame it on my brother or sister or something, then it won't go so bad for me. And you try it, and sometimes it works, right? The immediate consequences are what should happen. You kind of get away with it, and you think, hey, maybe lying every once in a while is okay. No one has to teach you that. We, a human, it's, it's not because your kids were around bad influences, okay? That, oh, these people corrupted my kids. They were hanging out with the wrong people. No, it's human nature. We, we, all, we all have this sick human nature that tells us, hey, it's okay to lie once in a while. It's not going to hurt anybody, and I don't want to hurt their feelings, so I'll just say this. Paul says that is not the radical Jesus life, that you got to put off lying. But notice, it's not enough just to put off the old man. It's not enough just to not lie. It's not enough just to say, I'm going to avoid lying. It's not enough just to keep your mouths closed, right? If something's going on at your business and you know there's this error that's been made and you're thinking to yourself, well, if I open my mouth, I mean, it's going to cause some awkwardness with me and my coworkers or it's going to cause a lot of extra work for me. So I'm not going to tell them that everything's okay. I'm just not going to say anything. I mean, if they ask me, you know, then I would open up. Then I would say something, you know, if my boss asked me. But if they don't, say, if they don't ask, I'll just keep my mouth closed, Paul's saying, no, that's not, that's not the way the Christian lives. It's not enough just not to lie. You must put on truthfulness. You know, someone comes to you and they start complaining. And you sit down and you listen to those complaints and you entertain those complaints. Rather than having the hard conversation and saying, have you actually talked to that person about it yet? Because if you haven't, I am not the person you need to be talking to. But to sit and listen and say, well, I'm not going to lie to them. And if they want to, you know, vent to me, I'll, I'll be a listening ear. All you're doing is encouraging their sin. Paul says it's not enough not to lie. You must put on truthfulness. You must speak honestly with people. You must take people to the scriptures. And if they're not living rightly, then you challenge them to do so in love. You must speak truth. It must be done in love, but you must speak truth. And Paul says, look, we're all members of one family. This is a family. God has saved us into a family. How does a good family operate? A good family looks out for one another. A good family speaks truth to one another. A good family does not allow other family members just to talk bad about other family members. We say, no, you can't do it. You got to make things right with your sister. You got to make things right with your mom. You got to make things right. That's how a good family operates. 
You have hard conversations sometimes, but that's what a good family does. And Paul says that's the way you have to live as believers. This is the radical Jesus life. Paul says you can't have an allegiance to the head, who is Christ, and somehow be disconnected from the body. It doesn't work that way. You, you get Jesus and you get the church. You get the family. And this is a good thing, but here's how you, here's how you have to live in it. It's not enough just to put off. You must also put on. Otherwise, you're still living in darkness. And unfortunately, the church is really good at knowing what to put off. You know, we're, we're really good at saying we can't lie, we can't steal, can't cuss, can't do all these things. We're, we're really good at saying that. Unfortunately, the church is also pretty good at justifying our gossip. The church is also pretty good at keeping our mouths closed. And here's what happens. People start talking. People start talking about the church, the way they do everything else. You know, we're in a consumeristic church age, right? People start rating the church like you'd rate any kind of organization. Well, you know, I, I like this church all right. I'll give, it, I'll give it four stars. If they added that program, maybe it'd go up to five. Oh, they took that program away, I'm knocking them down to three. You know, we rate the church the way we rate YMCA, right? Rate the, rate the YMCA the same way. Well, this YMCA is really good. You know, they're pretty friendly there. They're nice. So we'll give it, and I, like, I like the programs that they offer at the Y. We'll, we'll give it five stars. The only difference is, is, is the church also sprinkles this little holier than thou on top of it. Well, you know, the world is messed up, and it's all because of those unbelievers out there. If the lost people didn't act like lost people, our world would be in such a better place. It's not the church's fault, because we're, we're, we're better than that. And then what happens is people talk about, that's how you talk about the church? You, you rate the family of God the same way that you rate a business organization? You, 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 you talk about the church in the same terms that you talk about your country club and the, and the way you talk about this league or that league? You, you rate it the same way? No one would ever rate a family that way. Oh, I, I would rate my family four stars. You know, if we, if we had more game nights together, maybe, maybe our family could get up to five. No one would talk about a family that way. But for some reason, we, we've, we've entered into this dark way of thinking, and it is a turnoff to the culture. It is a turnoff to the world because they say, I can go to the YMCA, and I can get the same thing, only I don't have to have this, the holier-than-thou stuff on it. Paul goes on to say, he says, it's okay to be angry. Just don't let that anger result in sin. And the, remember, this whole passage is about living the radical Jesus life. That's, that's what Paul is trying to get the church to do, live the radical Jesus life. And so you have to ask the question, what made Jesus angry? And when you look at what made Jesus angry, it was never when he was offended, right? It was never when they were hurling insults at him and they were saying stuff about him. It was, that's not what got Jesus angry. Jesus became angry when the character of God the Father or the plans of God the Father were called into question. You remember Peter? Jesus is explaining to the disciples, hey, here's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. This is what's going to happen. And Peter steps in 
And he says, no, Lord, that'll never happen to you. We're not going to let that happen to you, Jesus. And you look at it and you say, that's kind of a nice thing of Peter to say. He doesn't want Jesus to die, right? I mean, and you almost expect Jesus to say, well, Peter, pat him on the back. Peter, that's so thoughtful. Bless your heart that you don't want me to die. I really appreciate it that you would look out for me that way, that you would love me that way. But here's where you're missing the mark a little bit. Let me just help you out, Peter. I know your heart's in the right place. Jesus doesn't do that at all. He looks at Peter and he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you're thinking the dark, futile thoughts of the world. You're thinking like a man. You're thinking the thoughts of men. You're not thinking like God. And you're, you're compromising the plan of God the Father. And so it made Jesus angry. See, our problem is we tend to get angry and we tend to get upset about stuff that affects us. It's when our honor is called into question. It's when our plans are interrupted that we tend to get angry, that we tend to get upset. You make a list this week. How many times do you get angry about stuff that happens to you? And how many times do you get angry because the character of God is called into question? And you just look at it. Paul keeps on going. And he says, put off stealing. You can't take something that's not yours. We kind of get that. But he says, that's not enough. It's not enough just not to steal. You can't just not steal and think you're good. He said, you must also put on working hard. You can't be lazy. You can't just pass the hours at your job, twiddling your thumbs or letting the clock tick away and then collecting your paycheck. That's not the radical Jesus life. You must be a hard worker. You should be the hardest worker in your company. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're the most talented or whatever, but you're working hard. You're giving it your very best. You're not complaining about the boss. You're not complaining about the job. You're not doing any of that. You're working hard. And hard work is a good thing. You think about it. How many people have to work hard for you to have a bowl of Wheaties? Okay, have you ate a bowl of Wheaties this morning? How many people had to work hard in order for you to eat that bowl of Wheaties? You got farmers that had to get out there and like get the ground ready and plant the seed. Harvesters go and, and collect the crops and all this. You have, you have to have people who make roads, right? I mean, we need road construction workers so that the crops can be transported from here to there. You need automobile workers because you've got to be able to drive from place to place. You've got to have people in the factory, factory workers processing everything, packaging it up. You've got to have advertisers to let you know that this product exists. You've got to have grocery store workers who stock the shelves and who check you out. Right? And I'm, I'm, oil, you know, gas, all this kind of stuff. How many workers does it take just to get the bowl of Wheaties? And then you can go to the bowl because you're probably not eating it just out of the box, right? And there's a bowl and there's a spoon and there's all this involved. You see, our work, it impacts other people. Work is good. Work wasn't something that God added after the fall. And said, oh, humanity, you guys are just a, a messed up lot. I'm going to make things really difficult for you here. Now you got to work. Work was a good thing given to humanity before the fall. And so work is good, and we must work hard. It's not enough just not to steal. We must work hard so then we can care for others and add a benefit to life. This is the radical Jesus life. And you look at the life of Jesus, and you talk about a hard worker. Jesus was a hard worker. He didn't have a home. He's just traveling from town to town. 
He's meeting people. He's healing people. He's hanging out with people. He's teaching. He's preaching. Experts say that one hour of public speaking on your feet is equivalent to an eight-hour, that your body goes through the same amount of stress as an eight-hour desk job. And, and you talk about someone who's, who's on his feet a lot and doing a lot of speaking, public speaking, that's Jesus, right? And so that's why at times he needed to get away and he needed to rest. He had to do that. This is the radical Jesus life. You work hard. You're a hardworking person. It's not enough just to put off stealing. You must also put on working hard. And Paul keeps going. And he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. You can't tear people down. You can't belittle people. You can't do that. Paul, Paul tells us where you can't complain. You can't, you can't be a complainer. You can't be a whiner. You, you gotta, it's not enough just not, not to offer corrupting talk, not, not to tear people down, not to say bad things about people, not to complain, not to whine, not all these things. Paul also says you must put on giving grace to anyone who hears. You must put on this, this speech that builds other people up, that we should be the greatest encouragers out there. Because we build people up and we encourage people. And we offer words of grace and words of love, words of encouragement. Truthful. We're still truthful. We're still honest. We're still willing to have the hard conversations when we need, when we need to. But we, we offer these words. This is, you know, we're entering into another uh, campaign political season. One of the saddest things to me is the way the church handles politics. I mean, you, you find people, they, they talk really nice most of the time, and then all of a sudden you get on their Facebook page during political season, and they make all kinds of nasty remarks about the other side, whatever the other side is. And I'm I've seen more, uh, I had a, a good friend of mine who I love dearly. I had to remove him from leadership because of the comments that he made about an opposing political person. You can't do that. You can't talk that way. I've never met anyone. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there. I've never met anyone who's changed their mind politically based on a Facebook post. There may be some, but I've never met them. I have met several people who have been turned off to the gospel because of political posts by spiritually immature believers. And they post hateful things. Understand this. That politician who you don't care for, they are not your enemy, okay? They are not your enemy. They are your mission field. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, okay? They are your mission field to be loved and to be prayed for, all right? We don't, any politician who goes Tuesday and votes for this pro-abortion legislation, they are not the enemy, they are misguided. They are living in the futility of their own thinking. They haven't seen the light yet. They are to be loved. They need, they need Jesus. They don't need to be ridiculed. Okay? You get them to Jesus, and then Jesus will conform their worldview. Don't miss that in the church, please. And Paul's imploring the church at this point. Live the radical Jesus life. Build people up. Be the best encourager you can be. And he knows you can only do that if you're not seeking control. If you're not in control of your life. Because the life that Paul is asking the church to lead, it's not a hard life. It's an impossible life. 
that you will not lead this life. You will not live this life by your own strength. You will not do it. And there's always times where our own strength creeps in, and what do we do? We go back to the process again that Paul has laid out. I put off the old self, I renew my mind, I think rightly, and I put on the new self. And then I live again. And I fall again, and I put off the old self again, and I renew my mind again, and I put on the new self again. It's it's not a perfect life, but it's a Holy Spirit-empowered life. And and so this is, the, this is the heart of the Holy Spirit, that, that we would live the life that we're called to live. And so Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve him. Anytime you, you put on walking in that old man, walking in that darkness, you grieve the Holy Spirit. Anytime what you do, what you know you shouldn't do, you grieve the Holy Spirit. And there's a deep sadness there. And, and you know what? You can only grieve someone who loves you. You realize that? You're not going to grieve somebody who doesn't care about you. If you're, if you're driving, you leave church today, you're driving, somebody cuts you off, you're probably not grieved, okay? You're just upset. Who is that guy, man? How are they driving like that? They, they should be off the road. Somebody you don't know very well, they say something mean about you, something unkind about you. Our first response is usually disgust. It's defense. We don't like it very much. But when someone in the family, someone who you care about deeply, someone you really love, and then they hurt you, the first response isn't disgust and defense. It's, it's just hurt. It's, it's sadness. It's, it's confusion, maybe. How, how could they do this? Don't, don't they understand how much I love them? Why, why, why did this happen? Why, this is deep sadness. And this is the heart of the Holy Spirit. Anytime we lie, anytime we steal, anytime we engage in corrupting talk, anytime we fail to put off the old man, the Holy Spirit of God grieves. And he grieves because he loves you. By, by the way, also, you cannot grieve a power. Okay, You can only grieve a person. A, a power does not care whether you do this or do that. A power does not care, okay? Gravity does not cheer if you become a glutton, okay? The Holy Spirit cares about your actions because he is a person. He is the third person of the Godhead. And you'll never hurt anyone as deeply as you'll hurt the Holy Spirit. You never will. And you'll never have anybody cheer for you the way the Holy Spirit is rooting for you. Because he has gifted you, he has equipped you, and he says, this is the radical Jesus life I want you to live. I've gifted you to do it, I've equipped you to do it, now do it, do it, do it, I'm rooting for you. There's no mama bear out there that's rooting for you the way the Holy Spirit of God is is rooting for you. And Paul says, church, don't you understand this? Don't, Don't you see how God loves you, how he's equipped you, how he's rooting for you, how he wants you to leave the lights on and go? engaged culture. And by this point, Paul's, he's really getting into it. I mean, you start reading it again, and then he just starts listing things, right? Before it was always put off this, put on this, put off this, put on this. But by this point, Paul is so into it for the church that he just goes, he says, hey, church, you need to put off bitterness, put off wrath, put off selfish anger, put off clamor, put off slander, put off malice. Paul says, get rid of all this dead weight. 
Someone in my impact group this week def, def, uh, defined it as a soul suck. I never heard that terminology before, but it was great. This old life, it being this negative life, holding grudges, looking out for yourself above others, trying to be the center of attention, talking bad about other people, treating people in an unkind way. All it does is suck your own soul dry because it takes you back to the old man, the marks of a dead life. And that man was crucified with Jesus. That, that man's dead. It's all darkness. It's all unworthy of the sacrifice that Jesus paid for you. It does not measure up to the calling that is given you. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, put it off. But he says it's not enough just to put it off. You must also put on the radical Jesus life. You must also put on being kind, being tenderhearted, being gentle, being quick to forgive as you've been forgiven. You have to put all that stuff on. That's the Jesus life. That's the Christian life. And, and the point of this whole passage is to live the radical Jesus life, to go take the light to the people in darkness so that they don't stay that way. And, and you look at how Paul concludes this section. And by the way, it, it's a unfortunate place where the translators decide to cut Paul off. They cut him off mid-thought. The chapter breaks and the verses, they're not, they're not inspired, okay? They, those were added in later. And why they decided to cut off Paul right here, I don't, I don't know. But, um, but the first two verses of chapter 5 really conclude his thought. And he summarizes all this by saying, so here's what it all comes down to. Be an imitator of God, Walk in love. Give yourself up for others just as Christ has given himself up for you. See, this is radical. You weren't saved for some milquetoast Christianity. You were saved to live the radical life of Jesus, to imitate him. And if I'm going to imitate Jesus, I've got to study Jesus. I've got to look and I've got to ask, okay, who are the people that Jesus just let walk away or he walked away from? And who are the people that Jesus chased after? How did Jesus lead? How did Jesus love? How, how did Jesus talk about sports or politics or theater? How, how did Jesus talk about the unbelieving world, lost people, people who cause offense? How, does, does Jesus, does he throw up a welcome banner or does Jesus go and engage people? How, how does Jesus deal with conflict? I've got to look at all those questions and think about this because I must imitate Jesus in how I live. See, all of that, all, all of Jesus' life informs then how I must live. Because if I'm not doing that, if I'm not studying the Jesus life, I'm not imitating him, then I'm not living a life worthy of the calling that I've been given. And the calling that you've been given is for the best life you could possibly have. When you put on the new life, and you live that way, the world has two choices. The world can either look at you and say, well, good for you, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. You just go ahead and live your life. Or the world can look at you and say, you know what? Maybe, maybe there is something to Jesus. Maybe there is something to this Jesus life because I, I know who you used to be. I know how you used to talk about people. I know how you used to complain I don't know how you used to get all wrapped up into politics, but now I see the way you act now. Now I see how you pray. Now I see how you encourage. Now I see how you build up. 
when you live the radical Jesus life, you're telling other people that a better life is possible. You're introducing a new authority into their world. You're showing the victory that Jesus gives, a new life. And some people wake up to that. They say, you know what? I've never seen anything like that before. I've never, I've never seen someone actually take the words of Scripture seriously and want to live it. And it wakes people up. Sometimes you're in for a fight. I mean, Paul, Paul lets you know that. Not, not everyone's going to respond well. There's wild beasts out there. And so in Ephesians 6, and we'll get to that, Paul talks about the armor of God, and you've got to put, off, put on the armor of God so that you're ready for the fight. But understand this, the armor of God in getting ready for the fight is so that you can be offended. It's so that people can slander you, so that people can talk bad about you, so that people can mistreat you, and they can mistreat your family. And instead of responding with defense and disgust and being upset about it, the armor of God equips you then to continue to walk in love, to continue to turn the other cheek the way Jesus did, to continue to live the radical Jesus life and offer grace and hope to a world that would marginalize you and mistreat you and slander you and say all kinds of evil against you just like they did him. That's what the armor of God's all about. It's to equip you to walk in that love always, no matter what happens, no matter how people treat you. Paul says that we must give ourselves up for others just as Jesus gave himself up for us. I mean, what a high privilege that is, that that we get to model the Jesus life, that we get to extend the same grace to others that Jesus extended to us. And so the question must come, at what point did Jesus offer himself up to us? Did, Did he offer himself up to us after we had already put off the old self and put on the new self? No. He gave himself up for us when we were in the midst of our sin, when we were living lives that were totally offensive to him, when, when we were enemies of God, when we, when we were doing the most despicable things in our life, it's at that moment, it's at the lowest moment in your life where sin was king and you were dead spiritually, that Jesus offered himself up for you. And now we get to offer ourselves up for people who are living the same kind of life who would talk about us the same way that people talked about Jesus. It's those people that we must give ourselves up for. And if you say, man, I'm new to this whole Christian thing. I don't know that I'm there yet. That's okay. That's okay. Jesus told the disciples, hey, follow me, and I'm going to teach you how to be a fisher of men. I'm going to pull you into chair too. I'm going to cause you to grow and to learn so that then I can send you out into this chair three and chair four lifestyle. But if you've been a Christian for a while and you're not giving yourself up for the lost people in our society, if you don't have lost friends, people who don't know Jesus, then it's time to start walking with Jesus. It's just time to mature in your faith and live the life that Jesus called you to live Paul's asking, basically, and he's built this foundation where he's asking the church, and don't you know how much God loves you? 
I mean, he's prayed this prayer several times. I want you to know how much God loves you. Because if you know how much God loves you, and then you know he's equipped you for this life, then you know that he's equipped you for the best life you could possibly live. Giving your life up for other people. I've never met anyone who have sacrificed and have done things for someone and shared Jesus with them, and then they come back and they say, man, that was a mistake. I really wish I wouldn't have done that. Never, never seen anyone like that. But I've been on mission trips with people, and I've seen other people who, like, it's the light bulb goes on. And they're like, why, why wasn't I living this way before? How, how come I wasn't just sacrificing myself for the good of others before? What, what was I doing? This is the life God's called you to live. God hates sin because it destroys lives, it ruins us. And he hates the sin of ineffectiveness, of neglecting our calling, of not living a life worthy of the calling we've received. You know, we live in a world of futile thinking, of darkened minds. People think, hey, I can just find myself in myself. That I can come up with the best standard for how I want to live and I can make the most comfortable life possible. You know, the gold standard in our day is tolerance, right? And that's the, that's the key. You just got to tolerate everybody. And just think about that, okay? With, if you're married in relation to your spouse, okay, you've been married 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, however long the case may be, and you go to your spouse after all those years, you know, after all these years, I'm really learning to tolerate you. <laughs> it sounds so silly when you put it in those terms, doesn't it? Because nobody wants that. When, when, it, when it gets right down to it, nobody just wants to be tolerated. We all want to be loved. We, we, we want to be loved despite our weaknesses, despite our failures, despite our ineffectiveness. Paul says that's what you get to do to people. You, you get to go love them. You get to share Jesus with them. You get to tell them of the best life they could possibly live. And then some of them are going to wake up. And they're going to realize, you know, the culture's lied to me. I've been walking in darkness. But that's only going to happen if we, the church, leave the light on. If we stop hiding our light under a bowl behind the walls of our church building and behind the walls of our houses, and we get out and we bring the light to the people in darkness, just like Paul is telling his church, the church, to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you didn't merely save us for heaven, but that you saved us for an eternal purpose right here and now, that we get to make eternal impact right here and now, and that, God, that you give the best way to live. So, God, forgive us for those times when we continue to put off, when we continue to fail to put off the old self. And, God, forgive us for when we think putting off the old self is enough and we don't walk worthy of our calling because we haven't put on the new self that you've called us to live. God, continue to renew our minds. Help us to understand more and more each day this life that you've called us to live, this glorious life on mission for you and your, king, your kingdom as an ambassador. An ambassador always goes to a foreign country, a foreign place. And God, thank you that you've sent us as missionaries to planet Earth at this time for this generation. What a glorious calling. Help us to live it well by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.